Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 4th, 2022. We are a few days before the midterms, and there is Serious nervousness, particularly on the part of the Democrats. According to the Post, the Dems are fearing a drubbing uh, as party leaders are rushing to defend the blue states. Um, the intelligence says the same thing with a photograph of a very worried-looking Joe Biden. He always looks a little worried. Um, Biden has brought his midterm message to South Florida, Um He's come to Florida to uh, blast Florida senators um, and remind Florida voters of the importance um, of, of this midterm. Um, and as he rallies for the Florida Democrats, Trump and DeSantis are planning dueling events in Florida. Uh, DeSantis, in many people's mind, the Florida governor, is emerging as the new and improved Donald Trump. I'm not sure if you can uh, describe uh, DeSantis as improved, but I think we understand uh, what they mean. Meanwhile, um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden aren't the only people going to Florida in the next few days. Uh, the Miami Book Fair is beginning uh, in a couple of weeks on November the 13th. Uh, and we've done a number of shows um, on some of the very distinguished writers who uh, are going to Miami. And we have another one on today. Ellis Coase will be going to Miami. He'll be speaking the final day of the event, um, uh, November the 20th. And he has a new book out, Race and Reckoning, From Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors. A very appropriate book, I think, for today's political environment and for Florida in general. And he's joining us from his home uh, in Manhattan. Ellis, um, are you nervous before these midterms? I think we're in a very dangerous point in our history. And I think that these midterms are going to give us an indication of just how dangerous this point is. So yes, I am nervous. I mean, I, I think we, we are witnessing a situation that's unprecedented in this country, uh, where we have uh, one party, large members at least of one party, who really don't care about democracy at all, but who only care about winning. And as has been widely broadcast, roughly half of the Republicans on the ticket are election deniers. So I think that's a very scary proposition, not just in terms of this election, but in terms of what it means for the future, for future elections and, and actually for the whole future of democracy itself. Ellis, you use the word unprecedented, but your book, Race and Reckoning from Founding Fathers to, to the Day's Disruptors, mm -hmm. traces um, a, a, quite a, a tight narrative in terms of the history of race, race uh, and of whites refusing to give up their power to people of other color skins. So right. is there anything really unprecedented about Trump or Biden? I saw you had an interesting piece um, uh, in USA Today earlier this year, suggesting that uh, Trump is just really a symptom of the problem that has existed for 200 years. So what's unprecedented about today's crisis? Uh, there's several things that are unprecedented. I mean, I, I think we, 
in many ways are at a point very similar to um, what preceded the Civil War. But imagine, for instance, um, because the if um, when Abraham Lincoln won uh, in 1860, if John Breckinridge, who was the uh, Southern Democrat, had declared, no, he didn't win, I won, uh, and managed to convince um, Democrats around the country that he, in fact, you know, had won the race. Um, as it was, we had a civil war, and we had and we had uh, several states, beginning with uh, South Carolina, that succeeded. But if, in fact, that argument had carried, and he had made that argument, then you would have had a war in in every state. You would have had you would have had a, a very different situation. And as tragic as the civil war was, it was not rooted. Um, and first of all, it was not rooted in a lie. And and secondly. Um, Everyone knew very clearly what was at stake. What was at stake was whether or not there would be the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. Here we have a conflict that's uh, lots of conflicts that are clearly rooted in falsehoods. And what's at stake is something much less, um, much more difficult to sort of get your head around. It's really a sense um, that many Republicans have that whites are losing power in this country and that and that and, and that is incumbent upon them to make sure that they don't. And it's not clear you know, what the end of this conflict will be or how you resolve it. So so yes, I think if you look at the post-reconstruction era um, after the Civil War, when the South basically rose again and decided to in effect re-enslave uh, people who had supposedly won freedom through slavery. There were very similar arguments to what are being used now for voter disenfranchisement. Um, but there was not an attempt to destroy democracy itself. And I think that's what, that's what we're dealing with now. Let's go back before Reconstruction and the Civil War, back to the origins of uh, the revolution. Did a mm -hmm. show with Stacey Schiff, a very distinguished American biographer. She's going to Miami too. She has a new book out about Samuel Adams. Where do you begin your book? Um, your your new book, Ellis, Race and Reckoning. Uh, you begin it in, in, in Jamestown, uh, even right. before uh, Adams. Exactly. Um, I think, and let me just back go back for a second, Andrew. I mean, originally when I was thinking about this book, I had not conceived of it as a book that was going to focus as much as it ends up focusing on race, because I, I had thought of, a, of making a book, of writing a book, which looked at significant turning points in American history with the intent of answering the question of how did we end up in 2016 uh, electing a president who basically did not believe in American principles? How do, how do, how do we get there? Um, and I think the journey for that begins in Jamestown in 1619, when the first Africans uh, arrived um, in the Virginia, in the Virginias. Yeah, and it began with a decision that was not made all at once, but that was made gradually over the course of decades, you know, to impose race-based slavery in this country and to abandon the very notion that all men were created equal, but that uh, some men were more equal than others. And, and I think that's bedeviled us ever since. And because we, we started off our, our country uh, with a lie. We started off with a lie that we really believed in something we did not believe in. And we spent 
hundreds of years trying to justify that lie, but, but still maintain we have a democracy. This is a controversial subject. I mean, you don't need me to tell you this, Alice. Sure. We could argue this stuff till the cows come home. Some people might say, well, of course, America remains in some ways racist. But what about a man like Ellis Coast, the author of a dozen books, a very distinguished journalist, um, the author of this new book, Race and Reckoning? You're headlining now Florida, the Miami Book Fair. Um, you've been a powerful figure. You have a nice home near the park, Central Park in, in New York City. Um, sure, there's been racism, but things have changed over the last 200 years or certainly 300 years since uh, mm -hmm. Jamestown. How would you respond to that kind of argument? I would agree with it. Uh, things have definitely changed. Um, someone like me could not exist um, in the uh, in the 1800s you know in this country we've we've uh, someone like me could not have lived in this neighborhood a uh, hundred years ago um, someone like me would not have um, access to the institutions and various other things that I have access to now I'm, I'm not denying that there's been a great deal of progress in terms of uh, racial equality in this country. But I also believe that you can't deny the impact of history and that much of the, many of the problems we have now, many of the inequalities that remain have to do with that history. I mean, we had over, uh, we had several hundred years of uh, enslavement, you know, and the result of that has been that we have deep inequalities in this country. We have deep segregation in this country, all of which are, are directly traceable to that. And, and I'm not saying that there's any way to just wave a wand and make that disappear. But, th but that's also has created a sense of difference in this country, not only among the uh, so-called disadvantaged, but among whites. I mean, ideally, we would not have this sense that something precious is at stake if the country somehow becomes less white. Um, but Donald Trump didn't create this feeling, but he certainly took advantage of it. And his whole slogan, make America great again, which, which was a, a thinly veiled reference to let's get America back to the time where um, these bothersome immigrants from Latin American countries and, and, and these Muslims and these black folks were not so prominent, and we had a country that had, you know, a single culture, as they as they like to speak of it. Uh, so, I'm the first one to agree that um, our stance on race, our way of regarding people of color now, is very, very different than it used to be. And I and I think we can congratulate ourselves on that progress. But I what I what I don't think we have reached is a, is a point where we are effectively colorblind, which is where we need to be. Your book links uh, chattel slavery, the New Deal, the COVID pandemic. Is the strand, the, the link, is it, is it institutionalized racism, Ellis? Is it the nature of American capitalism? Is it a cultural legacy from slavery? Is there one thing that makes sense of chattel slavery, the New Deal, and the America of COVID over the last few years? Um, if there is one thing that makes sense, it's our inclination to see some people as different than others, and therefore to treat one set of people different than others, and therefore to justify 
uh, in the inequality, not um, on the basis of unequal, unequal treatment, but on the basis of, of people just being very different. I mean, I think that, you know, ideally, we would have long time ago have gotten rid of this whole idea that people's value is in any way related to their color. We haven't, and we're still struggling with it. And I think that's, if, if, if there's one link that goes through all of those things, you know, it's that. I mean, even in, in the New Deal, when there was an attempt to uplift the, uh, the country as a whole, because people were obviously uh, starving, suffering, and uh, dealing with um, privation, um, the uh, Fred, uh, Roosevelt found that he could not, uh, you know, accomplish what he wanted to do without facing the issue of racism. I mean, the the um, um, the core where um, where where he, um, young people were basically hired, you know, to work in uh, various activities, improving the infrastructure of the nation had to deal with the problem of what do you do with housing? Where do you put the blacks uh, and whites when you have plenty of places across the country, including Tennessee, which has the Tennessee Valley Authority, which insisted on segregating blacks and whites. And the, and the solution was you, you put whites in nice housing and you put blacks in shacks. Um, that brought an attempt to uh, elevate everybody, but because of our legacy, because of where we started, uh, we could not just simply treat people as people. Your book focuses um, on uh, the idea that a, a true multicultural democracy has been repeatedly frustrated by white nationalists skilled at weaponizing racial anxieties of other whites. Mm -hmm. I mean, that goes without saying for the Proud Boys and some of these other fringe groups involved, for example, in January 6th, waving right. Confederate flags when they uh, invaded Congress. But would you include Trump and even DeSantis in, in that group of white nationalists who are weaponizing race to... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, think back to when Trump announced his candidacy. What did he? What was the first thing out of his mouth when he came down the escalator at uh, Trump Tower? He talked about how Mexicans were rapists, how Mexicans were uh, criminals. Um, he talked about, about Muslims and how evil they were. Um, what else is that? I mean, and, and, and then he, and, and, and when at one point he says something along the lines of maybe some of them are decent people, maybe some of them are decent people. I mean, that's if that's not a blatant appeal to racism, I don't know what is, you know? Um, and um, when we go back to the, the history of the Republican party, uh, go back to the 1950s when you had um, Goldwater who basically made the argument that the Republican Party um, needed to go hunting where the ducks are, as he put it. Basically, that you know, I think that was as 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 near as you can get to a decision by a political party to to, to become a party that represents a certain set of interests um, that is dictated along racial lines. And um, I mean, I think it's telling that when DeSantis decided to uh, send a group of people to Martha's Vineyard um, to basically trick um, immigrants from Venezuela for the most part into believing they were getting help. He picked a group that's not politically powerful in Florida. You know, he picked on, you know, he didn't, he didn't send 
Cuban-Americans um, to uh, Martha's Vineyard. He sent, you know, Venezuelans, uh, which are which 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 were easy to do because um, they don't have much power in Florida. So, so you know, what has happened, particularly with the rise of Trump, you know, is that this language, uh, this very racialized language, used to be very coded. I mean, when when Nixon talked about law and order, he didn't talk about how black people were thugs and criminals or how Mexicans were thugs and criminals. He just sort of pointed to riots and said law and order, and and he and he got the message across in a more subtle manner. But it was a very similar mass, a very similar message. I mean, Trump has a more brutal way of doing things, which actually appeals to a lot of people because a lot of people who are um, Trump um, advocates believe in their hearts that what America needs is to become, is to get rid of these minority people, these minority cities and, and become more white. I mean, it's interesting. We have this, this, this debate now about crime and I forget which candidate it was, but one of the democratic candidates pointed out that red states and red cities actually have more crime than so-called Blue cities now, I mean, when, when you look at it on a per capita basis, which, which came as a shock to many people because we have, because we have come to think of crime um, as equivalent, as, a, as another cold way of talking about race. You mentioned earlier that you thought the big difference between 2022 and November 2022 and the Civil War or pre-Civil War America was this was a fight over democracy. We've done many shows, Alice, on voting, mm -hmm. particularly the struggle of African-Americans to acquire the vote. Martha Jones has a wonderful book out on, on, on this called Vanguard. And then an old friend of the show and of mine, Carol Anderson, has a new book out, uh, One Person, No Vote. Is the way, Ellis, to fight back for those of us who, who want a, a real America, a multiracial America, to get beyond what you've been describing? Is it simply to show up and vote? Is that the core issue today? I think that's definitely the core issue right now and in, in this minute, um, because um, if we as a uh, if, if believers in liberal democracy um, lose at the polls, then we, in effect, um, lose our country. But I, I think there are also some larger overarching issues which are very difficult to deal with. I mean, I think that one is the question of people's attitudes and, and, and the way of, uh, of organizing around race. The other is the rise of social media and the ease that it makes it, the, the, the ease with which it gives people the ability um, to polarize people along any number of lines of actions, but in, including race. Uh, and the huge sort of, sort of elephant in the room that's often unspoken about is our own constitution. Uh, which, for reasons that had nothing to do with uh, with where we are now, has enshrined inequality of a certain sort. And let me just give you one example, and I, that I think I, I mentioned in the article you referred to earlier uh, for uh, USA Today. And it is that you know back in the time when the Constitution was written, there were not these huge disparities in size between states. There were not these huge differences between what was rural and what was urban in a political sense. And, and the largest difference in terms of size in the states was the difference between Virginia and Delaware, where Virginia was eight times the size of Delaware. If you counted enslaved persons as part of the population and they couldn't vote, obviously at that time, it was, it was 12 times the size of Delaware. So it made 
you could argue that there was no real harm in having each state have the same amount of, of representations in the Senate, same amount of representation in the Senate, because that was, uh, because they're, because the states were, for all intents and purposes, more or less around the same size. Um, now you have Wyoming, you know, uh, which, and, and California, which are the largest and smallest states. And California is roughly 68, 69 times the size of Wyoming, but it has the same representation in the Senate. Uh, the Senate, of course, is the body that passes on judges, that passes on all important appointments made by the president. Um, that decides some of the most important issues before our country. And so, and so as a result of just that mathematics, we have a situation now where 18% of the country can basically decide where we go as a democracy or where we go as a society. Um, that's very counter to the very notion of democracy as is the electoral college. But those are very, you know, to, to change those things you have to talk about how you change the constitution. And, and that's a, a problem that we don't even, that we can't even begin to figure out how to take on. So I, I, so I think we have, yes, we do have structural issues, structural issues having to do with how we organize ourselves as a country, but we also have human issues. And I think we can at least work on those. And those have to do with how we as individuals think about um, in other people in this country who are in some way different than us. Uh, and as the, Washington Post borrowed the title of your book, Race and Reckoning, to talk about the upcoming uh, the Supreme Court uh, debate on right. uh, affirmative action. How central is this? And if it is indeed made illegal under American law, do you fear, again, a return to mid-19th century America? We're never going to return to mid-19th century America. I mean, I, I think I think so many attitudes have gotten beyond that. Um, we we can we will never be a society where we sanction the kinds of mistreatment uh, that people suffered under enslavement. I think we're just grown up too much to have that. But I think it will make it much harder to have a society that really does treat everybody as equal. Um, I think the problem is that you have a large number of people who think that because we've gotten rid of some of the most um, evil aspects of racial inequality, we've gotten rid of the problem of racial inequality. We really haven't. Um, and I think I think affirmative action has been an, a very useful instrument in getting us closer to that. And, and I don't think it's time for it to end, but I think it's very likely that it will end. Uh, under the Supreme Court, um, which is which is hostile not only to affirmative action, which is which is debatable. I mean, one can debate both ways whether affirmative action makes sense or not, and I've been on, and I've been on both sides of those debates. But one cannot really argue um, that people ought to be treated equally and ought to have equal representation. And I think that um, in addition to this court to preparing to most likely dismantle affirmative action. This court has also mis, you know, um, dismantled in large measure um, the Voting Rights Act, uh, which simply ensures that um, people are not blatantly discriminated against when it comes to who gets to vote um, and how their votes are, are treated. And I think, uh, and I think, when you take the the whole picture of what this court is likely to do and what it already has done. Uh, it's moving us in, in, to a place that we as a country collectively, the majority does not want us to be. 
Um, but we, we go back again to that question of, the, of how decisions are made in this country. And when you have a Senate that's controlled uh, disproportionately by a uh, right-wing rural minority, uh, and then you get appointees to the Supreme Court who reflect that, who don't reflect American society, but who reflect a narrow portion of American society. Uh, Alice, a lot of historians who have been on this show have suggested the real tragedy in the middle of the 19th century was the failure of poor whites and poor blacks to unite politically. We've done a number of shows on that about right. the opportunities and promise of, of a kind of class-based populism. Uh, we also did a show with Heather McGee, uh, the author of the best-selling The Some of Us, uh, suggesting uh this kind of alliance is essential could you imagine that um is there I a can possibility for uh people of color and white working class people to unite politically and, and and rewrite the politics of america the political map yes i can imagine it and and, and a lot of people who are smarter than i have and much smarter than i am i have imagined that and that makes a great deal of sense. I mean, that was um, the Rainbow Coalition and the dream of, say, the Reverend Jesse Jackson a generation ago. That was his hope that you could get a coalition of people who share an economic interest. But what has always trumped that, unfortunately, uh, is race. I mean, what what the Republican Party has done is very interesting. I mean, it's it's managed to cobble together a coalition. Uh, largely of whites, because the Republican Party, quite frankly, is overwhelmingly, it's an overwhelming white party, who, who don't share economic interests. I mean, poor whites have very little in common with CEOs of major corporations who make tens of million dollars a year, but it's somehow cobbled together their interests. So, so it's become a party uh, in support of um, basically uh, polite racism but also of huge corporate interests. Um, those interests are not the same. Um, and the interests of, of poor whites have never been the same as the interests of rich whites. But because we've managed to create a country that's divided along racial lines, we have convinced people going back uh, to the times of slavery that poor whites have more in common with rich whites than they do with poor blacks, when that's just simply not true. It's important stuff, depressing in some ways, but perhaps hopeful. Uh, Ellis Coase's new book, Race and Reckoning, From Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors, is a very important read. And, uh, Ellis, you're, you're going to Miami, yeah, uh, on the 20th? Right. I'll be there at 4 o'clock uh, at, the, at the book fair. Are you on a, on a panel or uh, are you doing a speech? I believe it's a panel. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I believe it's a panel. A big fan of Miami, Ellis? Do you like going there? Uh, you know, I had a part of my career uh, as a newspaper man when I was a uh, an up and coming uh, Knight Ritter uh, executive. You know, and I used to go back and forth a lot to Miami because that's where Knight Ritter was uh, is headquartered uh, as part of corporate training and things of that nature. So I, I enjoy Miami. I, I like Miami, um, and of course, it's November. So why not be in Miami? Uh, in November. Yeah, escape the cold of the Northeast. Um, congratulations again on the new book. It's just out. It's got some great reviews, an important read on this 
endlessly traumatic subject of race in America. Uh, Ellis, what else would you suggest our viewers and listeners read to make them wiser, perhaps more optimistic, or even simply just entertained? Well, a book that I've found very interesting, I think it's very important, is something called How Civil War Start uh, by Barbara Walter. Yeah, Barbara uh, was on the show actually earlier this year. Yeah, and, and, and I think that book is immensely important because it puts in an international context and historical context sort of where we are now as a country and, and how countries move from democracies into what she calls anocracies uh, and looking at such places as Iraq, Rwanda, Rwanda, and other places. And so I think it's, I think it's a very important book. 